Welcome to the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the birders that pursue them. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Shrobsky Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser bird logging app, Spot, Plot, Play a Part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously, where to find amazing birds. Head on over to our website, www.thebirdinglife.com, and be sure to sign up to our newsletter on the site so you do not miss out on any of the exciting things that are coming up. Be sure to follow this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on, and please take some time to rate and comment on it. This is episode 17 of the Birding Life podcast, and today we are going to look at land-based seabirding. How to see pelagic birds from land, how to identify them, what tools will help you, as well as taking a trip around the southern African coastline to discover all the best spots to see pelagic birds. Today's guest was one of the key guys in the development of the new Sassel Birds of Southern African book and app. He holds a doctorate in seabird conservation. He works as a guide for birding ecotours, as well as being a passionate test cricket supporter. I'm pleased to welcome today's guest, Dominique Rollinson. So Dom, welcome to the show again. I just said before we went on air that you are probably the first guest that has been twice on the show. So you got another tick behind your name. Well done. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, and uh, happy to be back. So we had you on the show last time when we spoke about the, the Sassel e- eBirds app and was a really cool interview with Neil Parents. But I just think for people that didn't hear last time, some people might not know who you are. So can you share a little bit about yourself, maybe also a little bit about where this passion for birds started? Yeah, sure. So I've been, I've been birding now 25 years, I think it is. Uh, so it was as an eight-year-old in, in grade two or class two, we did a project at school um, on, on birds where we'd learned to spell, you know, wing and bill and what have you. And uh, I remember my teacher pointing out a hummercorp just outside the classroom and I think it was just putting a, being able to put a, a name, you know, a name to a bird, which really got me. Uh, so rather than just calling, you know, the, the doves I saw in the garden doves, I now knew that they were laughing doves. So I think that's really got, what got me interested. And then we're going to be talking about seabirding today. So what got me into seabirding was I did a, in 2011, I did a trip out to sea, uh, it was what, a two or three week trip. So collecting Atlas data, uh, that was for Ross Wanless. And uh, after that, he approached me and asked if I'd be interested in doing a, a PhD on seabirds with him and Peter Ryan. And yeah, I mean, from there, I spent months and months out at sea on various fishing vessels. And, uh, you know, we, we really got to grips with, with seabirds and, and uh, learned a lot more about them and uh, can really, you know, develop appreciation for these incredible flyers. And um, so that's really how I got into birding and, and more specifically seabirding. So you grew up in Zululand. So the birds you grew up with might've been a bit different to your, where your passion lies right now. So how did that early, how did the early days of birding look like in Zululand? Cause that's an amazing area for birding. Yeah. So, I mean, so I'm down in the Cape now. I'm down in Cape Town. Uh, so very, very different to down here. And uh, it's something I do miss, uh, 
you know, not, not being able to go into Nkuzi Game Reserve on Duma, which we, we did regularly as a, you know, as a kid and growing up. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you just can't really compete with the diversity that you get up in, in, uh, in Zululand and coming across things like Rudzapalus and Pink Trotted Twin Spots and all these East Coast specials. Uh, so, and also we, and then conversely, we can't really compete with uh, the seabirding um, down here in the Cape. Uh, compared to up, up on the, um, you know, off Rich's Bay, especially the numbers. So you can go off, off Cape Town on Flagic and you're seeing thousands, tens of thousands of birds behind trawlers, which is, you know, it's quite a spectacle to see. Whereas off, you know, doing pelagics off Rich's Bay, it's much lower, um, much lower diversity and, and numbers. But generally what you do see is can be quite special. And I mean, Neil Perrins has shown that doing his, Neil and David Allen, doing their um, pelagics of Durban where they've been getting some incredible species and actually are doing the Cape recently in terms of pelagic birding. And what's your favorite Zululand birding spot? It'll probably be Pongola Nature Reserve. So it's a little obscure nature reserve on the border with Swaziland. I mean, as a KZ enlister, I keep a KwaZulu Natal bird list and it's got um, almost like low felt type bush felt, which uh, just pushes into KZN there. So you can get things like virtual starlings and magpie, uh, magpie shrikes, which you don't get elsewhere in, in KZN. And it's just had some amazing both national rarities as the citron wagtail in the last year or two. There's a garden pipit from a few years back. And then just regional or KZN birds. Uh, so that's that's probably my favorite spot. And then probably along with Mkuzi Game Reserve, pretty hard to beat. I was reading on a website which wrote a little bit about you and you, the website described you as a self-confessed lister. So let me ask you the question, what is the craziest thing that you have done to add another bird to your list? Yeah, so I guess a friend and I, Michael Mason, ended up twitching from Cape Town to Katima Malilo, which I think was a 5,400 kilometer round trip. And we did it in what, 72 hours, I believe it was. So that was to go get those yellow-throated leaf loves. Um, and we actually got a gargany on route also. Um, so I think I'm still probably paying back, um, still planting trees to, to work off my carbon, uh, carbon emissions there. But um, yeah, so I've done a few of these crazy twitches over the years and they are a lot of fun. And a lot of people probably know you in this, at this time as one of the guys who was involved in the Cecil Birds of Southern Africa, um, the new book, and as well as the app. Besides being a birder, a lister, and all the things that people know about you, what are some other areas that you're interested in what, besides birding? Uh, so I love sport, uh, particularly cricket. Uh, so I've just been enjoying the England West Indies uh, series, uh, test series, which is going on at the moment. So really enjoy watching and, and playing a bit of sport. Yeah, I mean, also got an interest in uh, so other, other taxa, so a bit of herping, so reptiles and snakes and, and frogs and mammals. Uh, yeah, so I guess fairly, fairly broad interests. I must say it's probably one of the things that I'm very similar in a sense. I, I, when it comes to cricket season, I'll often plan birding trips around when test matches are and that. And <laughs> yeah, to sit back and watch a test, test match is probably almost right up there with birding for me. So yeah, test cricket is amazing. Yep, couldn't agree more. I had to chat to you, Dom, and I said I'd love to just chat to you about um, seabirding. We're going to chat in specific about this episode about seabirding from land. And, you know, 
I, I've done a pelagic and if I could do more pelagics, I'd do a lot more pelagics. Firstly, the budget doesn't always allow it. Also in this season, Ren, right now, the truth is we're not always, we're not able to get out to see to do pelagics. And the reality is there's a lot of people listening to the show who might not consider themselves as having sea legs. They are more worried about going out and spilling the contents of their guts over the side than seeing many birds. So I just, you know, it's a bit of a different angle, but we just want to chat about um, land-based seabirding. So let's start with this. The, the truth is that seabirds are really tricky. And let's just say someone's standing on a beach with bins or a scope and there's a whole lot of seabirds in front of them. What are some of the ID features that they should be looking out for? I know there's, there's general things that go across all bird groups, but are there specific things that people should look out for when they're looking at seabirds? Yes, there are. So, I mean, there's all the, as, as you mentioned, all the general things you would look for when you're out birding in any case and, and when, when you stumble across any new bird. But um, with seabirds, I'd say probably the most important thing to look out for, one of the most important things to look out for is the, the flight patterns. So they can be very different across the different uh, groups of birds. So for instance, you've got your, your shearwaters. So probably one of the most common seabirds which you would be seeing off, you know, from a, um, a land-based sea watch would be your sooty shearwater. And sooty shearwaters have got very distinctive or very, um, very different flight patterns to the other groups of seabirds. So they, they do these flap, 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 I mean, glides in between. And they fly, you know, fly really low above the water and very direct flight. Whereas if you compare that to a, for instance, a white chin petrel, which has uh, these broader wings and um, they do this, so their flight is more of a lazy, languid flight. They do these fairly big, uh, you know, arcs above, uh, above the waves and in a much more, sort of, as I said, lazy, lazy fashion. And then if you compare that to pterodroma petrels, which are, for instance, like your great winged and your soft plumage petrels, again, they've got a different flight. So that they do these, so much quicker wing, uh, much quicker or stronger wing beats, and in amongst these huge arcs. So they do. It's been described. I've heard it being described as a like watching a, a marble in a sphere. You know, doing these big rolls up and down. You know, it can be 50, you know, 30, 40 meter big arcs above the waves. And then if you compare that to an albatross, so very little flapping, um, flying quite low above the water, uh, compared to like for instance a gannet. So superficially especially on a sea watch, a gannet and an albatross could be quite similar. You know, they're mostly white plumage with the dark, dark primaries, um, black primaries. But if you look at their flights, they're just so different. So gannets will be flapping a lot more and flying quite high above the surface, you know, up to 30 meters above the surface and doing, you know, doing a lot of flapping and then these long glides in between. Whereas an albatross is using the wind a lot more. And, you know, on a windy day, you can watch it for a few minutes and it won't even flap its wings. So as a good starting point, I'd, I'd say that um, just um, watching the bird and, and seeing how it is flying can immediately get you down to, you know, one of the, the basic seabird groups. So probably when it comes to seabirds, behavior plays a very big part in the identification side of things. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So as I said, yeah, it can get you down to just at least get you down to the groups. So instead of now wondering, am I looking at a you know, sooty shearwater or a white chimp petrel? Just by watching it for you know, 30 seconds or 20 seconds, you can see that it's, it's doing these flap, flap, flap glides and it's a direct flight low above the water. So it's not a white, it's not a petrel, it's got to be a shearwater. Because uh, often from a distance, you're not going to pick up the, um, you know, the color of the bill, which under, 
you know, if you're out at sea, you could see that it's got a black bill. It's, it's definitely not a white chimpetrel, which has this pale bill. But at 300 meters, 400 meters through a telescope, you're not picking up these finer details. So it's probably a better, better starting point is to, to focus on the, um, on the different flight patterns. And there's tons of resources out there available for birders nowadays, books, um, websites, and a whole lot of things. Um, what are some books and resources, and like I said, even possibly websites that you'd recommend for people that want to sharpen up their identification skills around seabirds? Yeah, so, I mean, I've got to, I've got to mention the Sassel. Uh, so we've had Francie do our illustrations. This is the new Sassel 5, and his illustrations really are some of the best seabird illustrations I've ever seen. But then if, you, if you're looking more, you know, into further detail, I mean, we can't, Sassel can't, uh, you know, can't compete with the uh, seabird specialist guides, which really go into great detail. I mean, I think for me, one of the best around is the, it's called a complete guide to Antarctic wildlife. So this is focusing on the Southern Ocean. So that's by Hadaram Shirahai. Another, another great resource is uh, of his books by Bob Flood and Ashley Fisher. So that, this is when they focus on mostly on the North Atlantic uh, seabirds. Uh, and then they go into detail on the storm petrels and onto the pterodroma petrels. And, um, you know, some of these books are 200, 300 pages long. Focusing on, focusing on about 12 or 15 different species. So they just go into incredible detail. I mean, Peter Harrison's Seabirds um, book is sort of like the original go-to book, but it is a little dated now. So it's, I think it's around 30 years old now. Um, I have heard that he is, should be bringing out a new guide at some point soon, uh, but uh, I haven't heard any more on that. Um, and then as a local, a local guide would be Peter Ryan's uh, Seabirds of Southern Ocean or Southern Africa, which um, you know looks into all the different seabirds in a lot more detail and uses a lot of photographs. And yeah, so I reckon those those guys are a good start. This podcast is made possible by one of our sponsors, Birdlasser. Spot, plot, play a part. The Birdlasser app is available for free on both iOS and Android platforms. Be sure to download it today and seamlessly contribute to conservation initiatives. Okay, so let's let's get practical and let's let's look at Southern African birding. We've got a very vast coastline which stretches right round from Namibia to Mozambique. So let's take a bit of a trip around the Southern African coastline. Let's talk about some of the best spots to see pelagic birds from land, and also chat about what potential birds can be seen from those those, those spots. So I suggest let's start by. Um, Namibia. Let's start right on the north end. Let's chat about what could be some good spots around there and what could be seen. Yeah, so I, I probably as a just a general tip for for uh, land-based uh, seabirding, I'd say without a telescope, you're really battling. So a lot of these birds are 300, 400, 500 meters even further out at sea. Uh, and if you're sitting there with, with a pair of binoculars or a you know camera, you're really going to be battling. Uh, so my first advice would be, um, if you've got it, to make sure you take your telescope along. But then starting, so starting in the northwest, so starting in Namibia, I mean, I haven't done a great deal of sea watching off Namibia, but um, the little bit of sea watching I have done, I've done it from around Volvis Bay. So a lot of people, a lot of birders go to the, the salt works just south of Volvis Bay. But if you keep working your way along that road, you eventually get to Polkies, which is along, it's on a big uh, sand spit. And basically, 
just getting out, you know, getting onto these spits or peninsulas or capes means that you've got a little bit further away from land and uh, the birds generally come a lot closer. Uh, so some birds which you can get up there, like your sooty shearwaters, had giant petrels off there too, white chim petrels, Cape Gannis will be coming past. And there's a good, uh, you know, good diversity of the uh, marine cormorants too. But yeah, apart from, apart from Volvis Bay and Polkies, I uh, don't really know of any, too many other spots along the Namibian coastline. If we would then work our way further south um, into, or into South Africa, um, again, I haven't done much off uh, the Cape Columbine, so such as around Friedenburg, uh, Santa Helena Bay, but that's a nice, uh, nice peninsula which juts out there. So I imagine after some, after some decent weather coming through, you know, cold fronts or something, birds would be pushed a lot closer there and that would be a good spot. And then I guess with, uh, where I've done most of my sea watching or land-based sea watching is uh, around Cape Town. So probably the best spot um, is, is gotta be Cape Point. Uh, I mean, it is, you know, from Cape Town, it's a bit of a, you know, a bit further of a drive than some of the other spots I'll mention. But uh, the nice thing about sea watching from Cape Point, so um, like below the lighthouse, below the car park there, uh, you're about, what, 40, 50 meters up from the sea already. So just having that elevation means you've got a better, you know, you can see further out to sea and, uh, you know, see above the waves a lot better. And uh, especially after, some, you know, a big storm, a big cold front coming through, a lot of the birds come shelter in False Bay. So if you can get there the first thing after, after some big weather coming through, you can get, you know, thousands of birds coming past the point and you just set up your scope and you just see them streaming past in a, in a, in a constant flow. Uh, so that's a really great spot. And, you know, you can get up to seven or eight different uh, procellariforms or tube noses. So that's your albatrosses, your petrels and your shearwaters. So that's a really great spot. Uh, Komaki, so by the lighthouse, up the west coast of the peninsula is another good spot. And then a spot I've been using of late is uh, some rocks around Clifton. So just, just south of Clifton, Fourth Beach. It's a nice little peninsula which juts up there. And after, again, after some weather, there's some good, uh, good pelagic birds which come in there. Uh, so then if we, if we head further east, so the area around the, the Overberg, such as Hermanus, Hansby, and um, or Gallus Point, uh, or Cape Agallus. Uh, so yeah, as I said before, you're just looking for these uh, peninsulas and capes which are jutting out to sea. And they've been getting some amazing birds off, uh, off Hermanus recently. There's a gray-headed albatross seen uh, during, I think, level five lockdown. Uh, there's also a white morph southern giant petrel. Uh, so that's, again, just waiting for this weather to come through and then, and then going and setting up your scope. Uh, I don't have as much experience around the Eastern Cape, but I imagine like Cape St. Francis, uh, Cape Recife near uh, Port Elizabeth would all have good sea watching. And then further up the East Coast, so it's a little different off the East Coast, um, and I suspect it would be better in, uh, in summer. So that's when you've had these, especially late summer, when you've had these uh, tropical cyclones passing through the Mozambique Channel. So you can go, try in areas like Durban or Riches Bay and just getting onto those piers, which are 200, 300, uh, 300 meters further out to sea uh, after one of these big cyclones coming through. That's when you've got a good chance of picking up frigate birds, tropic birds, boobies. Uh, so slightly different to to what you'd expect, um, you know, further south or for Cape. And then the same principle would apply with Mozambique. Again, like I think I've done pretty much no sea watching off uh, Mozambique coastline, but um, 
it would apply just in what late January, February, waiting for these tropical cyclones to move through. I mean, yeah, just go set up your set up your scope and see what see what flies by. Oh, thanks, Dom. That's really awesome. Let's just ask you, you chatted about the importance of having a scope. What sort of magnification um, scope do you use? And yeah, what, what recommendations do you give for people that, that are in, coming, in choosing a scope? What sort of recommendations would you give? Okay, so I mean, like a lot of optics, it's you know, pretty much related on what your, your budget is. I mean, I've got a, a Kawa, which has a Kawa telescope with a 20 to 60 zoom. But I mean, if, if your 60 zoom is, is blurry, it's not much help. So, but I mean, you, you can pick up a, a decent telescope. Most of them go with about a 20 to 60 or 20 to 40 zoom, uh, you know, for a few thousand. But I mean, if you want to pay a lot of money for, you know, some of the, the better optic brands, that's obviously going to help you out. Um, but most of us don't have, you know, 50,000 rand lying around. So it's really just comes down to your budget at the end of the day. One thing I have picked up, um, if you really have to use bins from the shorts, also good to have a, a pair of good quality bins. I, I realized, you know, when you use the lower end bins, they, you really struggle to see what you're looking at. I, I just using a better pair of bins from the, the, you know, looking through them yesterday from the veranda, which is quite far away from the sea. Straight away, I could see a lot more detail on the birds I was looking at. So I think for those who can't get a scope at all, I mean, at least try and get a decent pair of bins. It does help. I think it's definitely a help. Yeah, and I mean, it just depends a lot on, I mean, if you're talking about land-based sea watching now, a lot of it on the conditions at the time. So if there's a really strong, uh, you know, onshore winds, the birds can be pushed a lot closer and you can be, you know, you can watch some of these seabirds just, you know, along the breakers or just beyond the breakers. And in those cases, you would be fine with, with a decent pair of bins, but it's maybe under, um, you know, under, I guess, more normal conditions where you would need a telescope to get onto those birds, which are, we're talking, you know, 500, 600 meters out at sea, uh, which is just beyond the reach of most decent binoculars. And you've kind of touched on it, but what conditions are the best conditions to get seabirds? And, and not just what conditions, but why do those conditions suit seabirds? Because, you know, you kind of touched on a little bit about them coming in for shelter when the weather's not great. But are there any other reasons why that bad weather is good for seabirding? Seabirds are essentially a lot more reliant on the weather than terrestrial birds. You know, they don't have trees or, or land to go to go perch on and shelter. So if there are strong winds, they basically have to, they can't fight against the winds or, or the weather. They've basically got to go with it to some degree. And, uh, you know, with their long thin wing, wings, uh, they are reliant on, on the wind, you know, for their movement. By having that uh, type of structure, they can save a lot of energy just using the wind. So that means when these big cold fronts from the Southwest do push up, there's a good chance that some of the birds are going to be pushed, uh, you know, brought along with, with the fronts. Um, and the same concept would apply, such as in the Mozambique Channel, when you got the, get these really big um, weather systems, uh, like tropical cyclones with, with strong winds and, 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 you know, big weather coming through. There's a chance that frigate birds, especially frigate birds, because they rely, also rely quite strong on the on, on soaring and on the on the wind so that's that's the the basic concept behind uh how weather impacts the, the um, seabirds i guess and then um i know this might change in different areas but in which is your best seasons for for seabirding 
Yeah, so it it would change. Uh, so if we if we're talking now of the Cape, so of Cape Town and probably up the west coast and you know further east to the Eastern Cape, uh, I'd say winter would be the best time. Uh, so that's when you've got a lot of your subantarctic breeding birds. They push up further further north, and uh, you've got a better chance of picking up like some of the albatross species. Uh, for instance, that grey-headed albatross, which I've seen off Hermanus a couple of months back. That's a bird you wouldn't be getting um, in, in summer off the Cape. So you just got, uh, I guess, a greater, a greater diversity of species um, off the Cape in winter. And then um, off the East Coast, I would say um, summertime is probably a better time, especially with these uh, tropical cyclones rolling through. Um, most of our frigate bird uh, records are from uh, are from summer and uh, yeah so that, that'll be my suggestion of the east coast i asked peter ryan this question and um yeah he gave me his answer but obviously you know working with seabirds and having to go out to sea you must have some pretty cool stories so what is your wildest sea adventure so i've done a couple trips for my PhD, so I worked on uh, seabirds. I worked on seabird bycatch, or trying to re reduce seabird bycatch from the uh, pelagic longline fishery, which is your tuna and your and your swordfish uh, fishery. And and for that research, I spent, I did two long trips out on Asian fishing boats. So the the first trip was on a Japanese boat, where I went on as a, as a um, fisheries observer, and that was a I think it was a ninety day trip in the end. Uh, so I spent 90 days out eating a lot of sashimi and rice. Um, I think I lost 11 kilos in the process. So a great, great thing to do if, if you do, do need to do some excess kilos. But it was, yeah, I mean, just incredibly hard work uh, measuring all these fish coming up every day. We were in some massive, uh, massive storms, 10 meter swells. And um, I mean, over those three months, I, I picked up about five or six lifers. Uh, so some great uh, Southern African birds, like I think I had about three or four blue petrels. I had uh, Solvens, um, Solvens albatross, Slenderboard prions. I had uh, a few sightings of Tristan albatrosses, um, Royal albatrosses daily, along with wandering albatrosses. Uh, we had killer whales coming and eating uh, the tuna off our lines just about every day for a month. Uh, so that was, that was right up there. And then I did a similar trip off uh, Mozambique on a Korean fishing vessel. And that was for, um, it was what, four months, I think it was. Uh, about 110 days, I think I was out at sea. And again, came back with some, yeah, some great uh, um, sub-region ticks, such as Swinnows, storm petrels, and Matsudera storm petrels, and frigate birds, and boobies, and tropic birds. Uh, yeah, so those, those two were, um, were tough trips, but uh, some great trips great trips and got, got me some good birds for my subregion list. And then we were speaking to start with, it's interesting. Um, I found this when I started the podcast, you know, you, you have this thing, you start in the podcast and you get to speak to amazing people. But what I found was I was not getting as much time to go birding and I'm sure, you know, being involved in the Cecil book and all the stuff you're involved in, there's a lot of times where it's a lot of behind the scenes work. We are actually not getting out and, and doing birding. So let me ask this question. Why? What what is your what do you hope in the next years that the contributions that you are making what do you hope that the work you're putting in now is going to actually achieve in the long run? Okay, so I work I work as a guide for a birding tour company known as 
birding eco tours. Um, so it's just, I guess, um, well, as I, as I get to spend more and more time out, to, out in the field, uh, you know, getting better experience with the birds, both locally and internationally. And uh, yeah, as you say, it's a lot of, lot of work behind the scenes, especially with my, with my involvement with the, the new Sassel coming out. But I guess it, you know, it's all contributing to our greater understanding of uh, birding and of um, you know, ornithology, in the, especially in the subregion. And um, yeah, I mean, I just hope to you know, build, on, build on the knowledge which we've um, been working off you know, from, from the last few decades. Yeah, I think that's, that's it really, in a nutshell. And then my last question, what advice would you give to new birders that are listening to this podcast? So I think just to be curious, if you hear a strange noise, you know, while you're out in the garden, don't just pass it off as something, you know, uh, what was that noise? I don't know. It's not a, not a call I'm, I'm familiar with. And so I'll just have to pass that one off. Uh, I mean, every time I go out birding, there's something I hear or something I see, which, you know, has to, I have to go investigate what that is. Um, birds have a massive repertoire of, of calls and, uh, you know, we're always learning new calls. The same with, um, you know, with a huge diversity of plumages, different ages, sexes, you're continually learning as you're spending more time out in the field. Uh, so it's uh, probably, yeah, just to not grow complacent and uh, always, always try to learn more on each, each of your birding expeditions or, or trips. So Dom, I just want to say thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate giving you your time. Um, yeah, it's always great to have a chat to you and to have the opportunity to chat to people of your caliber. And yeah, thanks for all the hard work you're putting in and for the contributions that you're making behind the scenes. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Adam. And, and no problem. Yeah, I always enjoy being on your show. And uh, just looking forward to when we can do, actually do some, uh, some sea watching out at sea again. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get you all the best birding resources at a great price. If you'd like a copy of either the Sassel Birds of Southern Africa Field Guide or Peter Ryan's Guide to Seabirds of Southern Africa, click on the link in the comments section of this podcast. I'm also busy working on a blog post on our website that'll be up by this weekend to help get you all the tools that you need to help you improve your seabird identification. So be sure to head over to www thebirdinglife.com and subscribe so that you don't miss out do not forget to follow the birding life on instagram and facebook we really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts be sure to check out bird lasser and download the app on either ios or android and keep a life list while playing your part in social conservation as well as Shropsky optic one of the world's leading producers of binoculars binoculars and spotting scopes so until next time be blessed and happy birding.